All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are continuing our sermon series called We Are Trailhead. We're looking at core values in a sense, or how those core values play out in specific ways, uh, because our values obviously shape our heart and guide our hands, and so we're exploring the values that drive us this morning. So grab your Bibles. We're going over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chair in front of you. And um, in our Bibles, we're going over to page 994, page 994. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that one with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you this morning. Um, We're going to page 994. 1 Timothy, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19, 17 through 19, beginning in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The Word of the Lord. All right, one of our core values is community. So when you go on our website and you look at our five core values, one of them is community, um, and, and we, we really do value community. Community is, is, is doing life together, right? It's, it's, it's connecting with people in a way that you know them and are known by them, where you can love them and be loved by them, right? What we do in our gathering this morning is important. Right? We worship God, we gather as the people of God, we listen to the Word of God, and those are all important, in fact, vital for the health of the local church. But <laughs> if you're here, and not, not just here, but like here, like, like you've been here more than two weeks and you think you're going to stay, um, I'm going to encourage you to join a community group. Because while the gathering is important, the life-on-life stuff, right, that's where it's happening. Life transformation takes place best in small groups where you know and are known and where you can push into the, the grace that is challenging you and share your struggles and share your joys, right? Our community groups are, are, are central, uh, our, our central channel, our central system for helping people grow in grace, for helping people grow as, as followers of Jesus. And so if you're here, I'm going to encourage you to at least get more information on our community groups. They meet throughout our, our community on different weeknights and uh, on the weekend. Um, and all you need to do is go to Connection Point right out in the lobby, and we'll be happy to give you some information uh, about them. And here's the thing. I, I'm going to tell you up front, um, it's going to be a little inconvenient, right? It's time, right? And time is always inconvenient. We're all stretched. Uh, it, it's going to be at points hard because you're going to be moving into relationship with people that, that may or may not be like you. In fact, probably not all of them will be. One of the things that I love about Trailhead Church is the diversity of, of, of our people. Now, obviously, we need to keep growing in diversity, um, but you're going to be in a group with people that are a different age than you, that are of different political persuasion than you, that are going to be checking a different box on the ballot than you. And that's okay, okay? Because you need to learn to love people that are different from you because you're going to learn that the grace you have in common is greater than the things that push you apart, right? There's, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be rewarding. And I'm going to tell you, you need to stick with it, right? You can't just go for a couple weeks and go, well, I guess that's not for me. 
That's like, like going out into the, the field and, and, and digging a hole and throwing a seed in and not even necessarily covering it up and going, well, there's nothing growing there. I guess that's not for me. You've got to invest time into it. You've got, you got to put, put some time into it and, and know that it's going to be, at times, sloppy and difficult. Sometimes it's going to be two steps back before you take three steps forward. It's going to be challenging because people are challenging, because you're challenging. <laughs> but we love you, and, and we want you to, to grow with others, okay? And so um, we're going to encourage you to, to do this, right? Because the more you invest in community, the more you get out of community. The more you grow with people who are following Jesus, the more you actually become like Jesus. It's, it's a sharing of life. And in fact, that's an important part of how this works. The word community is the Greek word koinonia, and it literally means sharing. It's a word that is often used for generosity. It's a word used for, for sharing not just life, but, but goods. It's, it's about sharing what is most important, sharing our lives, sharing our joy, sharing our friendship. And it's not just about relationships. It's about all of life. And here's the thing, as we're looking at the core value of community this morning, what I want to focus on is this. I want us to be a koinonia people, a sharing people, a people that are, that are driven to share what is valuable and meaningful, people who take joy in sharing, because what we share, we increase. What we share, we experience more of. Greed is the opposite of grace. And greed is this inward pull that causes us to, to self-protect, self-define, build walls and, and create shelters for, for our security. Sharing causes us to put other people's needs above our own. Sharing causes us to think of others instead of ourselves. Sharing causes us to take joy in other people's joy. And what we find is a beautiful revelation that what we share increases. I want us to be a people of generosity, a people of sharing. You guys, Jesus wasn't lying when he said it's more blessed to give than receive. And he wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't lying when he said those of you who try to keep your life will lose it, but those of you who lose my life, your life for my sake will gain it. Those who share, those who give, those who move in generosity find what is truly worth finding because we were made to thrive in the generosity of God. A God who's continually pouring out grace. We were designed to thrive in the pouring out of His generosity and in the pouring out of that generosity to be generous. In receiving to give. There is no one richer than the person who is rich in generosity. There is no one richer than the person who is rich in generosity. So let's take a look at our text, because it's going to kind of push on some stuff. It begins with this, as for the rich in this present age. And some of you are like, whew, good. I'm off the hook this week, because this passage sure isn't talking to me. Um, all right, let's talk about that. I read an article by Eric Sherman in Fortune magazine. Did you know that 41.6% of the world's personal wealth is owned by Americans. 41.6% of the world's personal wealth is owned by Americans. Americans are rich. 
We are the richest nation in the world when you look at the standard of personal wealth. And some of you are probably wondering, then why don't I feel rich? Well, the subtitle of that article was a new report dubs America the unequal states of America due to the gap, gaping wealth inequality. All right, so let's address this first of all. You've heard of the 1%. The 1% are those people in our population that are rich and getting richer. They have, they have more and more money, right? They're the people at the top of the financial pyramid, and, and, and they have only increased in, in wealth. And, and so we have more and more wealth being concentrate, uh, concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. America is the income inequality leader in the world. So not only are we the richest nation in the world, we also have the greatest um, personal wealth gap. The 1% holds so much that there's a huge gap between them and, and everybody else. Now, I did find this interesting. There's only one country that comes close to us, and I find this from a geopolitical economic perspective really ironic. It's Sweden. Um, they are number two in income gap, and I'm not going to unpack that. That's... I'll let you stew on that. According to the Pew Research Forum, from 2001 to 2013, so over just a little over a decade, the median income of the middle class in America dropped by $4,000. So that means over that income, the median, over that that decade, the average middle class American was making $4,000 less, but over that decade, things became more and more expensive. The cost of living went up while the cost of income or the, the, the amount of income was, was going down. So income inequality is a real and growing problem, and many of us feel it. That's part of the reason we feel pinched, because our dollar doesn't go as far as it used to, and our job doesn't bring in as many of them as it used to bring in. But my point this morning is not to get into an economics debate. I know some of you are chomping at the bit, right, ready to throw down. we got some people feeling the burn. We've got other people ready to pick up the club of capitalism and free market, right? That's not where we're going. <laughs> I want to talk about how this weird tension affects our hearts. That's where I want to go this morning. You guys, we feel poor partly because many of us are experiencing shrinking wealth. Because you're doing the same amount of work, you're making less money, and things cost more, right? That's part of the reason we feel poor. There are bills and we're having a hard time paying them. There are things that I want that I can't afford. There are things I want to do that I can't afford to do. And what ends up happening is we look around, and we don't have to look far to see people who have it better than we do, right? You just look around, right? And, and I think a big reason, big part of the reason at least, that we feel poor isn't just the, the shrinking of the middle class. I think a big part of it, honestly, is because we look around and we see people who are richer than we are. We see people that seem to have more economic freedom than we do. They seem to be able to make choices we want to make, to do things we want to do, to buy things we want to have. And as a result, we feel poor. Now, you guys, these are real struggles. The, the, the desire to pay your bills right? The stretching of, of the dollar, man. These are, these are real struggles, and I'm, I'm with you in them. But we need to be careful about how this struggle shapes our heart, how it shapes our perspective of life. Let's step outside of the American bubble for a minute and just get a little global perspective. 
If your lifestyle costs more than $50 a day, so, so your housing, your food, your, your, your auto, your travel, your whatever, if you're, if you're spending more than $50 a day to maintain your lifestyle, you are in the global rich. You are among the richest people in the world when you look at it globally. If your bills to live day to day exceed $350 a week, you are on a global scale rich. If your lifestyle costs $20 to $50 a day, then you're in the global middle class. So that means if you spend more than $140 a week, you're in the global middle class. Now, it is contextual, right? Because it costs more to live in America. It just does. And so people who, who may be in the global middle class are still considered in poverty in America because, because they don't have enough money to actually pay for the basic necessities of life here. But I'm just looking from a global perspective. We have a tremendous amount of wealth. When I visited Kyrgyzstan a couple of years ago, I stayed with a family that would have been considered part of the global middle class, and they were a great family. They ate well, they were, they were clothed well, they, they had homes that were very nice for, for their community and, and their standards, but they grew most of their own food. The father planted trees knowing his sons would need those trees in order to build their homes. It's a very different way of approaching wealth. You guys, what I'm getting at is this. How you feel about your money is comparative. And it all depends on who you compare yourself to. See, we are unbelievably rich compared to the rest of the world. We are rich, but ironically, we feel poor because we're continually comparing ourselves to other rich people. And I don't think it's that most of us aspire to be part of the 1%. I don't think most people are like, that's my goal. Uh, I, it's not like that's what, I man, if, I, if, I if I'm not one of the 1%, I'm never going to be happy. But, but what we do think is this. If I just had a little more, if I just had a little more money at the end of the month instead of a little more bill at the end of the month, if I just had a little more income, if I just had a little more vacation, if I just had a little more house, if I just had a little more car, if I just had a little more 401k, if I just had a little more, then I'd be happy. And that continual comparison of what we have compared to what we think we need or what we really want shapes our hearts in ugly ways. Because what it does is it focuses us on what we don't have and what we can't have instead of on the blessings we already do have. So when Paul says, exhort the rich, he's talking to us. Okay, are you getting that? That's, that's the whole point I'm getting to with this. It's us. We are the people that Paul was saying to Timothy, man, exhort the rich. So what is he telling us? What is he saying to us? He goes on and he says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So we're given a twofold warning. First, he says, don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Uh, the word, the Greek word in the original literally means high-minded. Don't be high-minded. 
Now, there's a couple ways we can be high-minded, and I think the first is obvious. We can think we're better than other people. And you're like, well, I would never do that, really. You would never do that? You never look down on somebody who has less than you and feel superior to them? You never look down on somebody who has less economic wealth, or maybe they're even economically destitute, and think, man, if they would have just made the choices I made, if they would have just worked like I worked, if they would have just done what I did, then they could be like me too. See, I think we are all prone to be high-minded and prideful toward those who have less than we do. We look down the social economic ladder, and we feel superior to those who have less. We judge them as lazy or incompetent or just generally worth less than other people who have more. When you see somebody walking down the street who is economically destitute and you see somebody else walking down the street who is economically well-off, do you, do you assume the one has more intrinsic worth than the other? You would never say it. You'd never put it in those words, but think about your attitude. Think about your heart. Are there people that you're more, more prone to gravitate to because of their wealth and their privilege and more people that you're prone to gravitate away from because of their need and their destitution? When you have money, you are tempted to be high-minded, especially when you look down the ladder of socioeconomic privilege and to feel superior toward those who are not in the same place you are, even though you don't know anything about their story. You know nothing about their work ethic. You know nothing about their lives or the struggles they've faced or the choices they've had to deal with. You know nothing, but you import a story on them and you feel superior to them. That's one way that we're high-minded. Another way, though, is when I think of how we look up the socioeconomic ladder. I think it's one way we're high-minded, when we focus our attention, when we're always looking up at those who have more, and we're jealous of them, and we envy them, their money, their comforts, their influence, their fame. We fill our vision with the gap between us and them, and our pride fills us with a poverty mentality. We feel poor in comparison. And we feel like we deserve better. And as a result, being high-minded, being prideful, causes us to be filled with both disdain and envy. Don't be haughty. Don't be high-minded. Don't look down on people who have less than you. And don't focus all your attention on the gap that that exists between you and people you perceive as having it better than you. And then he says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. So don't be haughty and tell them, tell them not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You guys, we all set our hope on something. We are creatures that can't help but hope. 
We, we have to hope. We are continually setting our hope on something. It is something we look forward to. It is something we work toward. It is something we invest in. We are all setting our hope on something. And, and we're being told, man, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. What you set your hope on is like the invisible home that you're building for your heart. And you're looking to that home to protect your heart when things go wrong. Right? You, you look to your hope when things go wrong to help you get through the bad times. That, 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 that thing helps you when things hurt to keep moving forward, to keep advancing. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of earthly riches. Whatever it is we set our hope on, we're looking to it to increase our joy and reduce our sorrow. And God is telling us that money is a horrible foundation on which to build on. It is unstable, it shifts, it is unpredictable, and it will, in the end, betray you. Your foundation will shake, and your hope will crack, and your heart will be exposed and hurt. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Instead, set it on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Hmm. What he's saying is stop looking to money to do for you what only God can do. Provide you security. Give you that long-needed rest. give you a sense of importance. Don't look to money. Look to God. Stop looking to money to do for you what only God can do. Stop looking to money to be for you what only God can be. See, God is the one who frees us into the true riches of life. Not money. He is the one who gives true and lasting wealth. Money can't be God. Only God can be God. And only God gives true wealth. So, if your Bibles are still open, I want you to look a few verses farther back up in verses 8 through 10. Okay? 1 Timothy 6, verses 8 through 10. Some very famous verses and often misquoted verses, up in 8 through 10, starting in verse 8. I want you to listen to what he's saying, okay? He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. All right, listen, (laughs) with food and clothing. That's the baseline. With these, we will be content, right? I would throw shelter in there as part of clothing because I think that's what he's implying. Food, shelter, clothing, basic necessities of life. With these, we'll be content. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich, pause, (laughs) compared to food, clothing, shelter. Those who desire to be rich, in other words, this is the baseline of contentment. Those who desire to be rich set the baseline of contentment up here. 
right? Paul's saying, look, this is the baseline of contentment, the basic necessities of life. If what you're saying is, I must be here to be content, I must have this as my baseline, listen to what he says about us. But, if, but those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, not might fall, not could fall, but do fall into a temptation. They're already in a snare. They fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. When we change the baseline of contentment, we do something really, really nasty to our own hearts. When we change the baseline of contentment, we're putting our own heart into a snare. We're laying a trap for ourselves. And it will let loose all kinds of desires within us that are harmful and painful and ugly. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, this is often misquoted as the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not what the original Greek says. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In other words, there are some people who are followers of Jesus who will set the baseline for contentment up here. And they're going to become so disillusioned. They're going to become so frustrated. They're going to be filled with so much angst and pain that they're going to blame God for their failed dreams. They're going to become so entitled And their pride, their high-mindedness is going to make them think they deserve up here. And as a result, when they don't get up here in whatever way they define it, it scuttles their faith in God and leads to the sinking of their faith. See, Paul is unpacking something in these verses that we all know. We all know, but we don't like to see it. There's nothing in our culture that values what these verses are saying. And that is that the baseline of where your money can bring you true joy is the baseline of contentment, which is the basic necessities of life. All right, let's make it clear. If you drop below that baseline, that's horrible suffering. If you can't provide food for yourself and for your children to eat, and you're actually starving, that is horrible suffering. If you can't provide clothing to protect you and your children from the elements, that is horrible suffering. If you cannot provide adequate shelter for you and for your children, that is horrible suffering. That baseline is absolutely necessary, right? Paul's not saying, look, I'm just telling you to be content even if you're starving to death. What he's saying is, look, contentment comes from having your basic needs met, your food in your stomach and clothes on your back and shelter around you so that you are safe, right? With these, we will be content. Extreme poverty brings extreme evil and suffering. We need to be above that line, that line of basic human needs. But listen to me, everything above that line is a game of diminishing returns. Think about it like this. You're exposed. You and your children have no shelter. For whatever reason, you've fallen into homelessness, and and the weather is changing, and it's really cold at night. That is extreme hardship. That's a danger to to your health and to your 
safety. And you'd get a shelter. It's a basic shelter, right? But it's shelter. It's four walls on a roof, it, and, and the wind doesn't blow through at night, and it's got a rudimentary way to, to provide heat, a fireplace, right? You can, you can go get your own wood, and, 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 and you can burn it, right? How happy are you going to be to get that shelter? The first night that you get to go in there and, and, and have your children next to the fire, and the wind is howling, how happy are you? Do you think that brings you joy? Absolutely. In that moment, it is, it is fullness of joy. In that moment, there is a, a sense in which I was lost and I'm now found. I was, I was exposed and I'm now covered. Having those basic needs met is a huge blessing. Now, let's say after time, you get a, a little nicer house, right? Now it's got internal heating and cooling, so you don't have to go out and get your own wood, right? It's got hot and cold running water, Does it bring you joy? Absolutely. Do you think it brings you as much joy as the initial gift of the shelter itself? Probably not. That was life and death. This is the difference between less and more comfort, right? But it still brings you joy, right? Let's say your house gets a little bit nicer, right? Now you you go from one bathroom to two. Some of you have made that transition. It's wonderful. With two daughters and a son, man, that was like a day of rejoicing, right? It brings you joy, but do you think it brings you as much joy as that initial gift of shelter? Or even the initial improvements to that shelter that that allowed you to to heat and cool your home more effectively? And you probably not. It's joy. Now, let's say your house gets a little bit nicer, you get a little bit more square footage, you you get two and a half bathrooms. So that if you're on the first floor, you don't have to walk all the way upstairs. And you get a little bit nicer flooring, like a little plusher carpet and some tile. Maybe even you get a marble countertop. Stainless steel. You're like, dude, yes. Is that going to give you joy? Yeah. Is it going to give you as much joy as getting two bathrooms? Is it going to give you as much joy as the first time you had heating and cooling? No. Now let's say you go from that to just a bigger, bigger house. Now you have more bedrooms than you can sleep in. Now you have more square footage than you can really functionally use. Now you have more amenities, right? You you went from having interior lights to having fancy interior lights. And you went from having... You know, nice windows to having nicer windows. You went from having, I don't know, a roof to having architectural shingles or clay tiles or metal. I don't know what you want. (laughs) How much joy does it bring you? Some. You get what I'm saying? The farther you get above the line, it's a game of diminishing returns. The higher you go, the less it pays off. And that's what Paul is saying. When you get stuck up here just thinking, if I can just get to the next line, if I could just get to the bigger house, if I can just get to the nicer car, if I can just get to the longer vacation, if I can just get to the vacation instead of the staycation, It's a game of diminishing 
returns. And when you set your hope up there, you're going to be increasingly and increasingly disappointed. Haven't we seen this? You get the nicer car, you get the bigger house, and pretty soon you just get bored of getting. And pretty soon those countertops you couldn't live without, they're just countertops. Those stainless steel appliances that look so great in the pictures, they, they're just appliances. The fourth bathroom that you don't even know where it is, it's just a bathroom, right? That's harmful to our souls. When we set our hope on the wrong things, we actually shrink our capacity for joy. We, we drug ourselves, in a sense, with false hope, which makes us immune to true hope. We actually become very, very cynical about life and about hope. You get trapped in a world of diminishing returns, having to sacrifice more and more to get less and less. See, money is a great tool, but it's a horrible God. All right, let me tell you about a formative experience in my life. This was a visit that I had many years ago, um, but it had a huge impact on me. I got to meet and hang out with a one percenter. I was down in Texas for a conference, and, and um, a friend of a friend uh, at the conference was like, hey, why don't you go with me? We're going to go over to my friend's house tonight. I didn't know him, um, but he's like, get him. I'm like, ah, he's like, he's rich. You got to see his house. At least come see his house. I'm like, all right. So I went along with him, um, and we went to this incredible, I mean, it was just an incredible estate. It was, it was a beautiful place. Um, you drive up, and, and the house is beautiful. The grounds are beautiful, and the dude meets us out front. He's, he's pretty friendly, you know, um, and he takes us in through the garage, and the garage is filled with all the toys, the cars, the Harleys, the... Uh, the Italian sports cars, and, and he stops and he tells us about his, you know, his, his latest toy, and, and he seems almost like interested and disinterested, and I'm kind of hoping he's going to toss me the keys so I can take it for a spin. <laughs> that didn't happen. Uh, he takes us in, and he doesn't give us a tour of the house or anything, but he, he takes us in, we walk through the lobby, and the lobby was just this huge, I mean, it was this vaulted ceilings, marble, everything, fireplaces, art, tapestries. I mean, literally, like, felt like a museum, and you walk through this professional kitchen, and we walked out to the back deck, if you can call it a deck. It was just this expanse of bigness, and, and it's overlooking land and a river. I mean, it was beautiful in the evening. The stars were out, and, and he had one of those no-horizon pools with literally pink marble lion statues, and I'm like, oh, those are interesting. He goes, yeah, I was in Italy. I found them interesting, so I bought them, and I, you know, they were, they were actual antique, I don't know what you call them, artifacts, I don't know, they're old, pink lions and, and fountains, and, and he goes over to his liquor cabinet, and he pulls out all the finest liquor, and he pulls out Cuban cigars, um, which are becoming less and less crazy, but back in the day, those were, those were the thing, and, and, um, and we just sit, and we talk, and, um, and here's the thing. 
as we sat and talked, and especially as he drank more and more, I mean, he wasn't trying to impress us. We weren't the kind of people he needed to be on for, right? This was a very high-power businessman. He knew how to have a public face. We had, <laughs> we had nothing to offer him. He had no need to impress us. And he just was sad. And the more he drank, the more kind of a bitterness just came out. I was really uncomfortable. And I was actually kind of glad when we left. I asked my friend about him on, on the drive back, and he's like, yeah, this is a guy who, who started with very little. He worked very, very hard to get what he got. He worked so hard that he sacrificed much along the way, and he made many choices. And part of that cost him his family. It cost him his wife, and he had a whole string of mistresses. He could, he could have any beautiful woman he wanted, at least he thought he could. And he, he indulged, and, and he lost his wife, and his kids were grown and estranged, and here he was sitting in a world of opulence, alone. And that image really struck me. And as we were driving home, I mean, I literally thought I would not trade places with him. I mean, I was going home to my house where the roof leaked. The car started most of the time. The bumper was actually kind of falling off. Credit card bills that had to keep being shifted to the next low interest offer. I mean, that was it, man. That was, we were a young family on a single income with expenses and we were struggling to make it work and I wouldn't have traded my, my position in life for the world. You guys, what makes life rich? It's love. It's joy. It's friendship. It is the giving and receiving of grace. It is being motivated by worthwhile goals. It is about loyalty and worthwhile sacrifice. It's not about having. All the good things that God will provide to us when we are humble and we're growing in grace. Those are the things that make life truly rich. Are you, seriously, do you believe this? When you are humble and you are growing in God's grace, you are growing in the true wealth of what it means to be human, created in the image of God. Our culture lies to us continually. It sells us the consumeristic lie that if you just have more, if you just buy more, if you just can, can consume more, and that race is not only exhausting, it kills our souls and reduces our genuine, true wealth. People who are truly rich are people who are most content with having money or not having money because their wealth doesn't come from their money. It comes from, from love and joy and grace and friendship. As long as their basic needs are met, they don't have a need to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So you guys, how do we grow in these true riches? How do we grow? Because here's the thing, man. Everything in our culture is leading us to have this grip of greed, to look at life as limited resources that you have to fight for more of, you have to keep what you have, you have to get more right? It's this black hole of need. Everything in our culture is pushing us here. What is, how do we move to a place 
of freedom? How do we move to a place where we're setting our hope uh, not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who gives all good things to enjoy? Verses 18 through 19 say this. They, that is us, the wealthy of the world, right? The, The rich of this age. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves. Treasure. Real treasure. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love that phrase. They may take hold of that, not which promises life but betrays you. Not that which promises life but always disappoints you. They may take hold of that which is truly life. If you want to grow in true riches, you need to grow in generosity. Bottom line. If you want to grow in true riches, you need to grow in generosity. You need to grow rich in good works. Grow rich in being a blessing to others. And then you will have a treasure stored up for you. Then you will be able to take hold of that which is truly life. Instead of being high-minded and putting your hope in uncertain riches, instead of putting your confidence in yourself or in your career or in your 401k or in your vacation, you need to put your confidence in the God who loves you and provides for you. Instead of setting your hope on the uncertain foundation of money, you need to have your hope securely built on God's love for you and sharing that love with others. Instead of playing the game of diminishing returns, trying to get more, you need to invest in that which accumulates true treasure. Taking hold of those things that bring true life. Listen, if you want to combat the greed that is strangling your heart, you need to grow rich in the grace of generosity. There's no other way. It is the currency of the kingdom of God. Greed is the currency of the kingdom of man. Generosity is the currency of the kingdom of God because we don't live in an economy of scarcity. We don't live in a world where we have to fight for more in order to be happy. We have everything given to us. So I want to give you three points as we wrap up to drive this home. First, as you move toward generosity, give in response to what you've been given. Give, but do it in response to what you've been given. Listen, we don't give to get. There are a lot of teachers, even Christian teachers, who will teach that. If you want more, give more. And they'll find Bible verses, and in fact, there are Bible verses that talk about how God enriches us for generosity so that the more generous you become, God will enrich you for greater generosity. That that is biblical. But the motivation they then place in front of you is, look, the reason you're not rich, the reason you don't have more is because you're not giving away enough, so give away more so you'll get more. That is a twisting of Scripture and a twisting of gospel motivation. We give because we've been given to. We give because we follow a generous God, a God who gave us His Son. A Son who was perfect in all the ways we're not, who lived a human life that that we should have lived and then died the death we deserve to die and rose again so that we could be forgiven, so that he could take our shame and we could take his glory. That's generosity. That's a gift. And as we allow that gift to soften our hearts, 
we will become generous because grace produces gratitude and gratitude produces generosity. And we don't worry about getting more because we have it all. We don't fight the game of diminishing returns because in Christ we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have the God of the universe who loves us and is for us, who will provide for us and protect us. We give because we've been given to. We give out of gratitude. Secondly, give enough that it hurts. Give enough that it hurts. You're like, Steve, I was with you all the way up to this point. I don't like this anymore. All right, this seems counterintuitive. It really does. Here's the thing. Americans like to give. We're a very generous people on a global scale. We really are. The average American gives um, out of what they can spare, though, not out of what they need. The average American gives 2% of their disposable income. So in other words, after they've paid for their, for their, for their, all their living expenses, all of their standard of life, you know, like, you know, we're all living, you know, that, that, the American dream. We buy a house bigger than we need and we're spending more than we should, right? So after they spend all the money on living this life, they look at what's left and they give about 2% of that. And that's generous by global scales. By global scale, that's, that's generous. That is not generous for the people of God. Now, Christians aren't any better. When you look at the actual percentages, we're like at 2.4%, which is a little bit better. We don't give in a way that hurts. We give in a way that is more like a tip. Like, oh, I can spare this. This won't hurt too much. This won't, it might give me a minor inconvenience because I'm giving away the cash in my pocket and I'll have to go get more cash a little bit later. Listen, if, if we really want to push into this, if we really want our generosity to have an impact on the greed in our hearts, um, we need to give in a way that, that hurts the greed of our hearts because that's what hurts. You know that suffering you're feeling when you give? That's greed dying. That's what it is. Um, that's why it's so important to give to that extent, right? That pain reveals the real poverty of our hearts. And I believe that our hearts are trapped in the snare of greed already. We think if we just hold on to more money, we'll have more of what's truly life, and it's just not true. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard that is common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we would like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. There should be things we want to do and cannot do, not because we don't have enough, but because we gave it away. Because in our generosity, we pushed in to our greed. When's the last time you gave a gift that hurt you to give it? I mean, like, really hurt it, not just, like, some of you, any gift hurts to give. And, and I've been there. There have been times. 
especially if I didn't think the person was worthy of it, which again indicates the, the sinfulness of my heart. When's the last time you gave away so much money that it hampered your ability to do what you wanted to do? When it really put a pinch on your lifestyle? When's the last time you gave away a basic necessity of life? When's the last time you gave away a car? And I'm not talking about like the old jalopy that's at the end of its life and you're not sure you can even sell it on Craigslist. I'm talking about a good car. But you can get by on one and somebody else has a need. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to hurt. It's really going to be a pain in the butt. But you can live with one and and they don't have one. When's the last time you gave away a car? Like, seriously, Steve, a car? Yeah, seriously. We are incredibly wealthy. We, many of us, could give away a car and still figure out how to survive. That's wealth. We need to give in such a way that it pinches our greed. When's the last time you gave away all your disposable income for the month? I'm not talking about the the money you needed to feed your family, to pay your bills. But when's the last time you gave away all your disposable income? So that month, you couldn't do any of the extras. Steve, that's crazy. I know. It is. If you're setting your, money on, setting your hope on money, it, it seems insane. I need that money to be happy. I need that money to, to, to do what I need to do, or I'm not going to be okay this month. Listen, the money isn't the pathway to getting what is truly life. Here's a little secret, you guys. It's actually good for you to give. It really is good for you. It's to your advantage. It's actually kind of fun. Generosity can be addictive. When you see how you can sacrifice and give and another can be blessed, it increases your motivation to sacrifice for the blessing of others. Finally this, give with the purpose of giving honor. When you give, you should give in response to what you've been given. You should give with the the purpose of, of being truly sacrificial, and you should give with the purpose of extending honor to the one that you give to. When we give to God, when we give money to the mission of the local church, when we give money in that way, we honor God as the giver of good gifts. It's our way of saying, you are the giver of all good things, and we come with our first fruits offering, and there's a lot of teaching in Scripture about this, but, but there is something very, very important for our hearts in giving back to the one who has given to us. When we give to those who have been a blessing to us, we honor their blessing. When we give to those who can't bless us because of their need or won't bless us because of the darkness and captivity of their hearts, We honor the image of God in them, even if they are not living out of that image of God. We give to honor, not to get honor back. Which means most of the time, we're not looking for the thank you. We're not giving in such a way that we get the credit. We're not giving in such a way that our name is emblazoned on a block for future generations to see just how generous we were. We give in ways that honor others, not in ways that are self-honoring. There's nothing wrong 
with giving in a public way, there is something wrong when we're giving for the purpose of publicity. We give to honor. And listen, you guys, this isn't just money. Money is an important part of this. In fact, I would say money is a crucial part of affecting and attacking the greed in our hearts. But I would say it's even words and praise and compliments. Honor those who are worthy of honor. Yeah, but, but their heads might get puffed up. Don't worry about the effects of your gifts. Let God take care of that. Don't you become the Holy Spirit for them. I'm not going to give them what they need. I'm not going to praise them when they're deserving praise because, you know what, it might be bad for them. You know, just let God be God and, and you worry about you, right? Give honor to whom honor is due. Become aware of who you should be honoring. Like attune your heart to the generosity of honoring. Who's serving you in ways that you haven't said thank, thank you for? Who's sacrificing in ways to bless you? Like your community group leaders. When's the last time you said thank you to your community group leaders? When's the last time you sacrificed for their good, simply acknowledging the sacrifices they're making for your good? When's the last time you grabbed one of the elders of the church? And I'm not, this isn't me. I'm talking about the elders of the church, these, these guys who don't have visible positions, who don't get people walking up to them and saying thank you. When's the last time you grabbed one of them and said thank you? Let me honor you. Let me bless you. You should be looking for ways to honor. I want us to be a koinonia people, a people of generosity, a people who are growing in the joy of giving. Let's be a people that are growing in true riches. Let me pray for us. I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. We'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of generosity. That is, in fact, one of your attributes. It's part of who you are. You are a generous God. Again and again, we read in your word, for you so loved that you gave. Because your nature is love, your nature is to give. And we are the recipients of that giving. We are the beneficiaries of that generosity. We are the ones that are blessed because you bore the sacrifice. How ridiculous it is for us to become greedy of the grace that we enjoy. How ridiculous it is of us to not trust that an infinitely loving and generous God will not provide for our needs, and equip seed for the sower that we might grow in the very generosity you're calling us to grow in. Lord, let us be bold in this faith. Let us push in joyfully to the sacrifice of putting the greed in our hearts to death. Spirit, you're the one that has to do this in us. We won't have the courage or the strength to do it on our own. We just pray. Free us in this grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.